Welcome to a holiday special, 20th episode of Rising Tide, the Ocean Podcast. This is David Helvarg. My co-host Vicky is off socially distancing underwater for her birthday. Today we have a special one-hour recording of our Writers for the Sea panel that we just held with authors Philippe and Ashlyn Cousteau, Enrique Sala, and Hannah Testa. Hope you enjoy it as much as we did. Writers for the Sea started five years ago with about 30 authors. We're now more than 90. We've got a good Facebook page with about a thousand interested folk. And uh, of course, we'll be doing more of these and posting them. But we're starting with a couple of friends, people uh, I admire. We've got Ashlyn and Philippe Cousteau, uh, ocean explorers, adventurers, environmental advocates, and filmmakers, as well as authors. Ashlyn, you've got a background as an entertainment reporter. Philippe, I first met 16 years ago, third generation in the family business of saving the ocean. Your latest books just out, The Endangered and soon to be out, Oceans for Dummies. And we'll come back to the books. Enrique, I know back to uh, scripts, another lifelong diver, as well as a script scientist turned National Geographic Explorer and resident and founder of the Christine Seas Program, which has literally saved, you know, millions of uh, acres protecting natural marine reserves. And I'm, I'm just about finished with your latest book, The Nature of Nature, which is kind of a personable primer to the science of ecology. And again, we'll get to the books. Hannah Testa, I've known two years, met you in Florida when you were 16. You're now an 18-year-old high school senior, both a friend of animals and since age 10, an enemy of plastic. I think in, by the time you were 15, you'd uh, help get the state of Georgia to pass a, uh, a law. Plastic Pollution Awareness Day was created there, and you're, you're continuing. Your new book is Taking on the Plastics Crisis. So let's let's start with a quick roundtable, just a little bit more about each of you. Your backgrounds is, uh, let's let us let you speak for a couple of minutes of what you're doing, and, and after that, we can get into why you wrote books. Ashlyn, Philippe. All right. Um, well, David, thank you. Thank you for having us here. We are delighted. And yes, uh, so I started off my career as a as a journalist. I went to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and I wanted to be a pop culture reporter. And I worked my way up to my dream job at E! News, where I was a correspondent and film anchor for about seven years. And around that time is when I met Philippe. And I realized that while I love talking about fashion and Kim Kardashian's new haircut, not really, I realized that I was bored and I wanted to have more purpose in my life. And it was, you know, one day when I remember going with Philippe to uh, uh, an event at the UN. And actually, I think it was the UN um, uh, Convention for Migratory Species. And I anchored, I hosted it and, and Philippe was the speaker. And I remember sitting at the cocktail party and, and Philippe had a line of people that wanted to talk to him about all things ocean and Cousteau. And then I, I realized that there was like somebody kind of hanging in the background and that wanted to talk to me. And they came over and they were asking me about celebrities. And the next thing I knew, I had a longer line than Philippe. So I realized, okay, here we are at this amazing meeting that's about changing the world and people still want to talk about pop culture. Uh, and I came away from that trip thinking, okay, how can we use what I learned in pop culture and media and television and documentaries, films, books, and, and relate that to conservation, saving the world, and more importantly, um, saving the ocean. So that's what I do now. I try to make conservation and, and saving the world cool. So moving people from Frank Ocean to the actual ocean. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. exactly. It's, you know, there's 
there's so many times that I've gone to an ocean conference and it's all the same people that are there. So how can we bring more people into the fold? How can we uh, diversify our audience, literally? Um, so that's kind of what I've always set out to do. And very much similar to that, you know, my work, David, we've known each other a long, long time, back to our days in D.C., um, getting up to all sorts of mischief and um, um, events and, 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 and drinking of, like fish and fun, drinking like fish every once in a while, water, of course. And, uh, uh, you know, my work has always been in storytelling and communications inspired by my father, Philippe Sr. And of course, you know, my grandfather. And, you know, so I do documentaries and we do television and we do environmental education work. Hannah, we got more to talk about. I was looking forward to meeting you on this, on this, because uh, uh, we've never, I don't believe, connected. Uh, we'd love to connect more about your youth leadership work because um, we do a lot of that at Earth Echo. And, um, you know, our work in, in storytelling in general, you know, looking back at my grandfather, you know, my grandfather uh, had a, a television series, Innocent de Jacques Cousteau, there was half a dozen channels on television or so. And if you had a program on Sunday night on ABC, that's it. You had a pretty solid audience. Your audience came to you in 2020. That's not the case. We have a thousand channels and YouTube and internet and social media and all these other things. And so we need to go to our audience. And so we really believe that in communications and the next generation iteration of, of my legacy is really thinking about how do we blanket the market space, pop culture, et cetera, with lots of different ways for people to engage uh, in the environment. And literature is one way to do that. We also do virtual reality. We've got a couple of TV shows, starting a, a new blue economy, business about building blue economy, lots of other stuff that's outside the purview of today. But I'm excited to get into the various different books because it's a very specific strategy that looks at different stratas of age levels, how we target them, how we provide resources, tools and things around the ocean to, to on-ramp people, you know, at, at Hannah's age and younger, uh, when you started out and younger, because we really believe that that's how we build the foundation of social and cultural support in society for conservation for the ocean, so that we can then have the economic and political change that we really need. Great. And Hannah, how'd you get going? So I am currently 18. I started around the age of 10. And um, I first started with endangered animal species as an animal activist. And through that, I was learning about a little bit about plastic pollution because of its impact on marine species. And then I watched a documentary called Plastic Paradise by Angela Sun, still one of my favorites. Um, and that's what really opened my eyes to the issue of plastic pollution. And about seven years ago, plastic pollution wasn't, you know, such a mainstream topic. Not many people knew about it. And I was completely baffled. I felt like my head was buried in the sand and I knew I had to do something. And a lot of people didn't want to be a part of the problem. They just didn't know how to be a part of the solution. So I've made it my goal ever since to speak up and educate people on the issue. And now that plastic pollution is more common and more people know about it, um, I've shifted my focus more in towards policy and helping to lobby and testify and help pass legislation uh, regarding single-use plastics. So I started the organization Hannah for Change, um, also when I was 10 years old mainly for animals, but obviously shifted towards like plastic pollution, ocean conservation. So I've been doing that ever since. I've been public speaking and um, doing workshops and webinars, um, especially in 2020, a lot of Zoom webinars, but um, been absolutely incredible. And I work mainly with uh, other young people, and um, but also people of all ages, but mainly young people to inspire them that you don't have to be an adult to get involved in policy or, um, you know, to grab a microphone and get up on stage and talk about the issues that you care about. Because we're often told that we have to wait until we're older or that our voices aren't valid. So just reiterating to them that 
your voice truly is powerful and you can really activate it for change with the resources you have right where you are. And I think the last few years for certain, we've seen that, you know, people used to say, well, youth are the leaders of the future. They're leaders today if we're willing to partner and, and work together and the, the climate movement and BLM and all these emerging activist movements are youth driven. Absolutely. And, and, uh, and Hannah, you said it so well. And I think that's, that's really the key missing piece in the last few decades, the environmental movement has been focusing on and, and, and uplifting young people and building that, that social and cultural uh, shift in society that, that, that can really support conservation and youth are the way to do it. So bravo. And Enrique, you spent your youth kind of hanging out on the Costa Brava, like a little uh, miniature turtle in the water when you weren't at the family restaurant. But tell people, give them the thumbnail on your extraordinary life. Well, thank you so much, David, for having me. And yeah, when I was a little boy, I wanted to be a diver in Philippe's grandpa's boat, the Calypso. That was my dream, right? Yeah. But I was born a little too late for that. So I studied marine biology, became a diver. And did a PhD and ended up at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography, working with uh, Jeremy Jackson and Nancy Nolton here, who are, who are listening now. And I was studying the impacts of humans in the ocean, the impacts of fishing and, and climate change. And one day I realized that all we were doing was writing the obituary of ocean life with more and more precision. So I felt like the doctor who's telling you how you're going to die with excruciating detail, but not offering a cure. So I decided to quit uh, my wonderful job as a professor at Scripps and work on the cure. So I came to National Geographic Society in 2008 and proposed uh, an idea. Why don't we go to some of the wildest places in the ocean, do research, media, and convince the key people in those countries to protect them before it's too late? And I call that pristine seas. And they, in their infinite wisdom, they decided it was a good idea. So I moved to Washington, D.C. in July 2008, 12 years ago. And since we have been combining exploration, scientific research, economic analysis, lots of media, and work with communities and, and policy work with country leaders. And we've been very, very lucky. We've been involved in the creation of 23 marine reserves from the Russian Arctic to Antarctica through the tropics and the temperate seas covering a total area of six and a half million square kilometers, so over half the size of the US, and but that's not enough. So we're going to continue with pristine seas for 10 more years. Cool, right on. So like you, Enrique, and I think most of us in this movement, I mean, as a kid, I wanted to be a frog man and, you know, save dolphins in America or be an oceanographer. And eventually I became a journalist, spent 30 years in a schizophrenic state of going off to cover wars and epidemics so I could go home and body surf. And it was more than 30 years into my career as a journalist doing print radio and television that I wrote my first book, The War Against the Greens, and have written five ocean books since then, because I sort of came to realize that books are a medium that one, they take on a life of their own and they generate other media. And I also had more responsibility. I didn't need to drag a crew behind me. I just needed a, a pen and a reporter notebook. And I, I'm wondering before we get into the specifics of your exciting books, if each of you just, just tell me what about book writing kind of inspires or, or motivated you to do at least one. I'll be, I'll be brief. You know, I, 
again, it's, it's, as you said, David, they take on a life of their own. It's a very important medium and it's a medium that can last, you know, and, and for us with a particular focus on youth, you know, kids read books, they read a lot of books usually, and, and parents love getting books. And in fact, it's oftentimes a bit of a sneak attack because by focusing on books for young people that their parents might be reading to them, it's a great opportunity to, to, to educate parents and adults as well and make them part of the journey together, which is really what what needs to happen. So books is, is just a great means of inspiring and educating. And for me specifically, I saw that there was a gap in the market. When I was trying to educate myself more on the ocean, I couldn't find really anything in between either a textbook that was like Oceanography 101 or a book that's really about the ocean and, and how it makes you feel and things like that. I couldn't find a book that explained how the ocean worked in layman's terms. So it was that whole and having time during quarantine that set me off on this on this journey. Hannah, why'd you write a book? Very similar reason. I saw a gap in the market, especially for like young adults. Um, it was hard to find, you know, books that wasn't pure research. It was easy for us to digest and understand. Um, although they are very important, it was harder for people. There wasn't really an introduction into the world of plastic pollution activism. And in a sense, it's kind of a guide towards how to get involved, like what the problem is, why it's a problem in the first place and how to be a part of the solution. And it's mainly directed towards young people, kind of step-by-step basis of how I did it and how they can do it too. And Enrique, I mean, you've written literally hundreds of scientific papers and published a lot, but is this your first book? It's my first narrative book, yes. And I wrote it because my head was hurting because I talked to a lot of people, mayors, bank executives, CEOs of corporations, politicians, and they have no idea about how nature works, but not the, the most basic knowledge of ecology. So I had all these, all these ideas in my head for 30 years, and I just lent my hand to, to the ideas, and the book wrote itself. because I, I wanted to communicate this, um, to communicate why our economy sits on top of our society, and our society sits on top of the natural world. And something as simple as this, my God, you know, even the, the people in the highest positions they just didn't get it so that was the the motivation well and let's let's start going into the specific books we're talking about then uh your book the nature of nature it's almost hard to do this when you're it's disappearing yes it's disappearing off the shelves it's just so good (laughs) um i kind of take it as like a a personal primer on the science of ecology and how the natural world uh impacts us and and how we can move from hyper predator to uh to recognizing our role as being part of the natural world and not apart from it so tell me some more about uh you just started to about yeah the theme to... and the publisher and how it's it's getting out there yeah so i'm lucky that i i work at national geographic so national geographic books agreed to publish the book we made things much easier and uh, i wanted to communicate uh, three main things one is ecology for people in a hurry, basically. Telling a series of stories, mine and stories of other, other scientists who discovered ha- what happens when species get together. What happens if we remove species from an ecosystem? How do species self-assemble in these wonderful things that we call ecosystems, forests, wetlands, coral reefs? So once we understand the basics of how nature works, then 
why do we need nature? What are all the benefits that we get from the natural world that we cannot replace, that we cannot do ourselves despite our ingenuity and technology? And then I wanted to talk about the moral imperative, the moral argument for protecting the rest of life on our planet. And finally, of course, the economic argument, because the, you talk to the ministers of the environment, the elders say, oh, I understand this, we need to protect this place. But the minister of finance, the first question he will ask, because it's usually a guy, is uh, how much is it going to cost? Right? So I, I wanted to show that the economics of protection of nature are very clear, that the world with more nature protected, a world with at least 30% of the planet protected by 2030 has a greater economic output. But then COVID happened. And I called my editor and said, hey, I think I want to write uh, an epilogue, a, a final chapter of the nature of coronavirus and putting everything together because the pandemic is something that has affected everybody, every single person on the planet. And, and she said, you have two weeks. Um, and so I wrote a, a final chapter and that's uh, how I, I put everything together. As the pandemic as the loudest wake up call we've had about the need to change our broken relationship with nature. So years ago, when you were at Scripps with uh, Jeremy and Nancy, they had a conference where they brought historians and journalists together with scientists. And at one point I, I had to stand up and say, there's a cultural gap. Us journalists tend to be ADD and you scientists tend to be obsessive compulsive disorder. And all the journalists sort of laughed and all the scientists in the front looked at me like, what empirical data do you have to prove that? What I really like about your book is that you, you simplify complexity. You explain the, the complexity of ecology with good examples like wolves in Yellowstone or sharks on the reefs that people can understand. And I think we don't just protect what we love, we protect what we understand. I'm now a big fan of your uh, popularized writing. Thank um, you, David. <laughs> and Hannah, you're... Your book is is part of a series. Maybe you could tell us how it came about and who's putting out the series and, and what you're you're communicating. Yeah, of course. So um, the book Taking on the Plastics Crisis is part of a larger collection under Penguin Random House, and it's called the Pocket Change Collective. And um, right now, they're, I'm the sixth book, actually, in their series, but they've got two more coming out um, next year. And um, they're fairly small books, hence the name Pocket Change Collective. They're supposed to like fit in your pocket, but they're small books with big ideas. And it's mainly young people writing about different issues that they're passionate about and their journeys and um, really just educating and empowering and inspiring their readers to take action and to really, you know, motivate them. So obviously mine's on plastic pollution and its connection to the ocean um, and my journey in activism, how, you know, I don't live by the ocean. I'm in Atlanta. So I live hundreds of miles from the nearest beach, but so talking about how we impact the ocean and how it impacts me and its connection to climate change, I think it's important to highlight uh, how those are intersectional, because a lot of times we see them as two very separate big issues, but they're very much interconnected. Um, I talk about recycling and why it's not ultimately the best solution, because I think especially for young people, that's what we're taught in school. Uh, recycling is a solution, but I, with the three R's we're taught, reduce, reuse, recycle, I add two more, which is refuse and raise awareness. And um, I talk about, you know, raising awareness on the issue. And once you educate yourself 
um, on the topic, you can then educate others. And um, one of my favorite parts of the book is I actually highlight other young people that have done incredible work regarding plastic pollution and their movements and their successes of all ages all across the world, because it's not just me. I'm not the only young person. There's um, so many young people that are taking action um, on this issue. So I want to make sure I highlight these other young people and also what other people, the other readers um, can do in their own communities as well. So, and Philippe and Ashlyn, you've got a couple of books, uh, one just out, one in the works. Let's let's start with, and I haven't read it yet, but I'm really looking forward to your The Endangered, which has a polar bear, a, a narwhale, a pangolin, and a very timely, a pangolin, and an orangutan. So tell, tell me what The Endangered is about. Well, first, I just want to say, Hannah, you know, the, the, the 15 years of you and do, doing youth activation, youth education work through Earth Echo and and we continue to grow every year. Such a brilliant approach because modeling behavior, and I think particularly as much for young people as for adults, for people to recognize that just how extraordinary and the work that young people can do in terms of passing laws and raising money and protecting land and all the things that adults, so many adults think of young people as like, oh, you get to beach clean up or something, which is fine and that's good, but there's so much more to it than that, that, that that's potential. So I'm really excited. I can't wait to, uh, to, to look at your book because... Um, we also look to model that, that kind of behavior, and, and that's really important. So bravo. Endangered is a book that just came out about two months ago with HarperCollins. It's part of a series. This is book one in a, in a series. And it is, Hannah, uh, you like this, it's a, it's a, it's a, a response to kind of the endangered species crisis that we're facing in the world and how things essentially are out of balance. It's a middle grade reader book. It's targeted 8 to 12 years old. And it's about a motley crew of endangered species, a pangolin, a polar bear, as you said, um, a narwhal and a um, uh, orangutan, who band together, are brought, are rescued from the wild. All their backstories are based on reality. We partner with the World Wildlife Fund, so we have real information at the back of the book about each of these species. So they're all rescued from the wild, brought to a secret facility in the Galapagos where they're administered a special serum. And with that serum, they are um, they achieve this hyperintelligence, unbeknownst to their human captors uh, or rehabilitators, and they go on special adventures. So you can see. Uh, Nukilik, the uh, polar bear, um, is wearing a bandolier and their fly red tail, that uh, uh, plane. Uh, uh, yeah, and there's a orangutan, you know, there's a, a reef, the orangutan, their leader swinging through there. So they go on adventures like an A-team for animals all over the world. And it's really looking at how we can, you know, s- tap into the, the, the passion that young people have already for animals at this age group, give them really good, real information, all the backstories of the characters all the issues they're, they're, they're grappling with from climate change to you know uh, uh, the depletion of the grasslands and prairie dogs to the reintroduction of, you know, and the need to reintroduce other characters here, black-footed ferrets. Uh, all of that is really a, a way to teach through fiction. And we're looking already at, at doing an animated series out of this. And we did a series of webinars with experts in the field that was free as part of distance learning throughout November we did for schools all over the world. Those are all archived online at theendangerance.com. And so, again, the idea was really, you know, how do we build a whole story world around this critical issue for young people? And, and how convenient that a team actually A is for animals. Exactly. exactly. And, and D is for dummies. So I've seen a lot of the, you know, different things for dummies, you know, uh, <laughs> the car mechanics for dummies. Um, you're working on oceans for dummies? Yes. So, um, well, I will like to say the one thing that I love so much about this book is when you look at the, bind, at the binder, it says 
Aslan Cousteau. And that is because Philippe's co-writer was Austin Aslan. But I personally like it because it looks like I wrote this book. Though I did People not. look at it and they're like, Ashley, yeah. this is like, your book. But yeah. Yeah. So um, while Philippe was busy on this, you know, I... Obviously, Philippe was was born into this amazing family with an amazing legacy that is all about conservation and oceans. And when Philippe and I were dating and, and when we were getting married, and I just realized that my knowledge of the ocean from, you know, I took AP biology and I took AP, AP chemistry in high school, but that's it. And we didn't cover the ocean much. And as I wanted to kind of dig deeper into just understanding the basics of the ocean, I really couldn't find anything. And I will say that, you know, growing up, the scientists that we were all used to were not amazing scientists like Enrique. They were scientists that spoke like scientists. They couldn't explain what they were talking about. They would talk down to you. And with that's so why I'm so excited about Enrique's book, because that's what we need. We need people from the science community that are extremely intelligent, that are good communicators. And I do think that this new breed of scientists that are coming out are realizing the importance of communication. So when um, actually, so Wiley had approached me. Wiley Publishing is the, Wiley the publishing, publishing company does of the Dummies series. For Dummies. They had approached and they were like, hey, would you want to write a book for dummies? And I was like, well, on what? They were like, well, what anything you want? I was like, okay. Um, and I was looking at their massive library. I mean, literally, I, I think they have like wood whittling for dummies. Um, so but as I was researching that, I realized they didn't have anything on the ocean. Which honestly, I don't think will surprise anybody on this call, on this, on this, in the Zoom, because like oceans they always are get the always seat. getting like left out of the yeah. conversation. So think that like, yeah, a book series that literally has a book about everything except the ocean. Yeah. So I realized that maybe this could be that stepping stone for people. This could be the, okay, I'd like to go fishing on the weekends, but and I want to learn more about fish populations. Cool. Um, you know, wow, my house got hit by a hur hurricane. Why did that happen? So it's literally in 450 pages, it explains the ocean. Now it just touches on little aspects of everything, really how tides work, how waves work, um, how do tsunamis form. But that's what, that's Tommy, what did you say. That's exciting. Yeah. Like I just wanted to learn how did people, how do people get it? How yeah. What, what is ocean acidification in like a page as opposed to like a chapter? Yeah. What is, how does climate and weather work? How does the ocean influence that? What are all the different groups and subgroups of animals within the ocean? Archaea and protus and bacteria all the way up to reptiles. Like in a chapter for each of them, as opposed to a whole book about each. So really look at what's Which the history. Which was really hard to do, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> the ocean is very big. Yeah. It was very hard to get and, small. And written in a fun way, which is your gift of like being now in the ocean for seven years and this whole world, yeah. and really for a decade, but still being like not deep, deep, deep into it. You right. brought that wonderful like accessibility to the writing and made it really easy. It's something you can just pick up and be like, oh, okay, I didn't know how this works. Now I do. And it, it's thorough. It's everything from governance of the ocean. I wrote that chapter, all the law of the sea and all those things to, you know, how, what the ocean does economically, what the ocean, you know, what we do to the ocean, what the options for restoring the ocean the are. The state of the ocean, how we can improve it. Exploration, you know, everything. I mean, it's, it's really extraordinary. We're excited about it. But I do want to say my favorite thing. So, so we're actually, the, so the book comes out in February. Um, so we're actually, our final review is due this week. So as you all know, we're like, oh! but one of the funniest things when I finally said that I was writing this book on social media, I got a private message from someone that worked at NOAA. 
and I will keep their name secret because they just wrote and said, as a government employee that works at NOAA and is a proud ocean lover, I'm so excited you're writing this. And I really hope that your first copy will go to the head of NOAA, Neil <laughs> Jacobs, because he needs to know more about how the ocean works. <laughs> that's perfect. Yeah, that's the goal. <laughs> so well, it's, a, it's an everyday book for everybody about the ocean. It's, it's, we've had some bad history on ocean governance, but part yes. of that, I mean, a lot of that is, is, you know, greed and corruption, but a lot of that is a lack of knowledge on, you know, there are 8 billion of our species on the planet and we're almost all on the 29% that's terrestrial on any given day. There are fewer than 50 million people out on the ocean in the navies and the fishing fleets and commercial shipping and sea gypsies. Our actual connections with the ocean, although we live on its edge, are very rare and few. So what what are you all hoping with these books? What is your reader takeaway? I mean, as I say, books take on a life of their own. And once it's out there, it's like a child, you know, your child's out in the wild and takes its own direction. But what are you hoping that that your writers are going to take away from this? Let's circle back and read Canna Pusto's. Well, what the pandemic has shown us very clearly, which is that we are all connected, not just to each other, human beings, but with the 9 million species of plants and animals and probably a trillion different types of microbes. And that, that you tamper with nature in one part of the planet and the consequences are global. And we cannot treat nature, as you said very well, uh, David, we are not apart from nature. We are a part of nature. Um, so understanding that we are not only part of it, but that our very survival depends on the work of other species, and that we cannot replace this, you know, that will prompt us to take care of, uh, of our life support system. So as a reader who's almost through your book, Enrique, I had one question, which was, um, you talk about, you know, the roles that, that all the different species play, including, you know, keystone species and foundational and as much as I don't like them, mosquitoes feed bats and, and cockroaches clean up after other critters' messes. Have you found an actual ecological niche or useful purpose that humans fulfill? <laughs> ah, I haven't thought about that. That's a great question. Um, you know, we, have, we are predators, right? We are top predators. I think we need to shift back to... You know, I think that we conservationists are the immune system of the planet. We are like the B cells or the T cells that have activated because we need to get rid of the, the invader. Only that the invader is, is ourselves, right? So I think that our role has, has to shift from reckless, unfettered growth based on, on leverage to the the gardener the 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 steward i think the the niche that we have had until now is just doesn't work anymore we need to get out of, of that box and understand that you know it's not all about us so yeah we, we need we need to shift our niche so there's a, there you go you just uh, made up a new a new uh, discipline in ecology niche shifting niche shifting move over we're like nature made conscious and we're both in the seventh or eighth global extinction. We're both the meteor hurtling toward the planet and the planetary defense. So 
Nature made conscious. I like that. So Hannah, who's reading your book and how are you getting out there in the, uh, you're not taking book tours. None of us are doing book tours these days. Yeah. How, <laughs> yes, how are you outreaching on your, your story and, and who's your target audience really? Yeah. So my book came out in October. So right in the middle of the pandemic. So all the previous plans we had to scratch and start over. Um, but really just trying to push it out into schools and the school systems and um, like science classes, green clubs, um, as much as possible. And I'm actually also working with uh, other schools in my own community, um, hopefully to get one book in every school in my community, but also um, to donate my book into schools in marginalized communities. So um, students in those areas that may not have these opportunities to read books like this on uh, current issues or see other young people um, taking action on these issues um, and hear the message that, you know, you are powerful and you can truly change the world um, because a lot of times those kids in those communities don't get that opportunity or don't get that message. Um, so I wanted to be able to give that to them and um, work with them. So I'm actually working with schools in Atlanta, um, trying to do some in California, I'm doing Liverpool, England. Um, so already a lot in the works, which is super exciting and really just trying to push out as much as I can to like, it's around middle school, high school age group. Uh, my brother, he's in fourth grade and he can pretty much understand it, but sometimes he's like, what does this mean? So I have to like kind of explain a, a couple things here and there, but overall it's pretty just like the basics of plastic pollution, like why you should care in the first place. And um, I've heard back from a lot of um, like my family that have not heard me speak. They're like, I had no idea. Like they'll see like things I, I say or post, but they don't fully understand, I guess, like the, the more details that are left behind. Um, they're like, I had no idea how big of an issue this is. And, you know, fire up people that, you know, this is a huge issue and all of us, we need to come together hand in hand. Uh, to tackle it. It's not going to be one person that's going to save us from this plastics crisis. It's going to take all of us. And um, something I wrote in my book, which I love, is um, the weight of the world is not as heavy if we all lift it together. And I think it's it's going to take all of us coming together, all of our individual parts um, kind of chipping away to create real change. It's a nicely put, lightens my spirit. <laughs> Philippe, years ago, I appreciate you. Uh, you did the introduction for my book, 50 Ways to Save the Ocean, which is also illustrated by Sherman's Lagoon cartoonist, Jim Toomey. And we'll have Jim on one of these as well. But earlier on, you're saying you've got other books that are that you've done and others in the works. Mention some of your other... Uh, yeah. So, you know, for us, it's it's really about how do we, again, build a movement um, and enhance and, and empower and and hopefully foster more Hannah's. You know, that's really the goal, because that's how we're going to really change this situation. I mean, look at the last election. Uh, a major motivating factor to get young people to the polls in record numbers was climate change. Uh, and that's a direct result of our organization and many like us who have been focused on even when it hasn't been popular and the funding hasn't and still isn't there, frankly, from the foundations and the traditional ocean funders to support education. We've been doing it for, you know, for 15 years and, and along with some of our uh, many of our colleagues in the education space and, and schools and amazing teachers. And it's been building that youth movement of people who care about these issues. So for us, it's about how do we grow that pipeline? So a few years ago, I, I came out in my first book, Follow the Moon Home, which is an elementary book. It's all about a little girl that rescues sea turtles in her community using uh, a service learning theory, uh, kind of the whole problem solving project in, in the book. And we won a bunch of awards. It's been a really terrific book for, gosh, five or six years now. 
Uh, and then Ashlyn and I decided to go even younger, and we're doing this project called Ocean Champs. And this is exciting because this is using a new technology that was essentially pioneered in school photography. Yeah, and um, they can, using AI, they can take any child's face and really capture it and really put it inside the book. So it's a personalized book that kids go on adventures with Philippe and I to meet really amazing um, undersea and maybe on land. So we're animated. So we're animated Uh, and then and then any child can come on the adventure with us. This is our little daughter, Vivian. So this is a sample. (laughs) And actually, uh, little kids are such narcissists. We realize, I mean, this is for kids from, you know, two to six, three, you know. So putting their actual picture in the character. So it's all digital now. So you can send, you send a photograph of your kid. And then a few weeks later, you get a book with her picture in it, his or her picture and their name. And throughout the book, they go on adventures. So in this case, we're going to a Belizean reef. We meet a, 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 a grouper here. It's based on a real story of uh, that we had an adventure where we were filming a show for a travel channel. And throughout it, the character kind of goes on this adventure. So we're also looking at animated for this. And, and this is a way to hit kind of even that younger and then kind of follow the moon home and that level endangered. And then, you know, for, for the adults, because fundamentally what we find is that, you know, youth, again, the youth is, is, is key. Hannah just said it really well, where she said, parents and friends and older people in your family are like, oh, I had no idea this was such a big issue. They'll listen to you, right? So we're, we're about building that pipeline, building those Hannahs and, and creating the support um, for people to, to care about these issues. So this is great. This is basically a publishing technology that allows us to bring selfies back into books. Yes, exactly. One hundred percent. Maybe we'll get that shift back from, you know, every new media. There's there's no new media that's destroyed old media. So maybe this is a way that we bring people tap, tap all together. Yeah. And back yeah. into the book binder. We got to build we got to build the desire because Enrique said so well, you know, so few people really understand the basics of how ecology and the environment and all these biodiversity and endangered species and invasive species, all this stuff works and why it's a problem. It's shocking. So, you well, know, like it's, it's all strategy together from, from the books for adults to young people and how do we, you know, grow that movement. And, and specifically for Oceans for Dummies, you know, I wanted to reach out to the average person that is maybe lives in the middle of the country and they don't understand why the ocean pertains to them. And, you know, we explain, you know, like, for instance, if you're worried about national security, okay, we explain how the Somali pirates and the terrorism that is funded by them started out as a, uh, as a goofed up fisheries management um, lack, of fisheries, lack management. of fisheries management. And we talk about, okay, you care about money and, and a great strong economy. Great. If the ocean was a country, it would be the seventh richest country in the world. So technically the ocean should have a seat at the G7 summit. But then we also talk about sharks and how amazing they are. And if you are indeed afraid of sharks, you should be more afraid of having a heart attack, getting in your car, going in an airplane. <laughs> you know, so we are, I think specifically for oceans, I almost, we almost want to step back. Um, and, and I'm, and, and really wanted to target the people that, that don't just want to save the ocean, but the people that don't care about the ocean. Don't know. Or don't know about the ocean, because then if they know about the ocean, they'll hopefully care about the ocean and then they'll want to save it. And books, books also change language. Um, you read Enrique's book, you have the actual ocean experience, you realize yeah. it's not shark infested waters, it's shark enhanced waters. That's right. Exactly. So I think um, there's probably a lot of interest and there's some questions uh, building up. So maybe we can get Natasha, to, uh, who's been looking at the questions, to get us into the Q&A uh, portion of our discussion. 
Hi, everyone. Thank you. Um, we've had we have a few questions from our attendees. You guys touched on this a little bit, but Jeff was asking about how the pandemic has affected book sales and publishing. Obviously, you guys are not doing tours, but book sales are up in general. Um, would any of you like to talk about the impact the pandemic has had on the process of, of publishing books and getting them out there? I'll just say from our perspective, it's actually made it easier to write because we've been folk, we've been able to do it. And, and the timeline on delivering a, a dummies book is like very fast. I mean, Ashton wrote most of this book and she wrote it in um, like for three months, 450 pages in like three months. It was extraordinary. So they like drive, drive you really hard. Um, we, uh, 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 so from that perspective, but yeah, the PR and the press has been difficult. We also, my book came out at the very end of September, Hannah. So like all the PR plans that we had out the window, so that that's been, I think, difficult to, um, um, you know, kind of promote it the way you'd like to. But certainly, yeah, book sales are up in general. That's a good thing. And in terms of uh, either online or in person, masked and socially distanced, order these books, order all our ocean books from independent bookstores. They're the rock bottom of, of community based literacy. Hey, Jeff, buddy, how are you? I'm glad to know you're here. Uh, you know, for me, it's been great. By the way, congratulations on your book deal. Jeff Burnside, who asked the question. Oh. Yes. Um, and um, so for me, it's been actually easier because I can give a book talk in uh, LA in the morning, another in Baltimore in the afternoon, and another in uh, you know, uh, Hong Kong in the, in the evening. So uh, it's, been, it's been really much easier on my health and my body. And I've been able to reach to so many, so many more people. So there is an advantage of having, you know, everybody connected uh, to the Zoom, to the Zoom sphere. It's great. And and actually, with the elimination of travel for book tours, the time you save, you can do other socially distanced activities like go diving. And and Jeff is Jeff Burnside, also from a Society of Environmental Journalists. I think that there's future collaboration writers for the sea can do with SEJ. I'm thinking a panel of like journalists who've written ocean books, um, like Ian Urbina and Julia Elprin, sorry, from the Washington Post, Ian, formerly New York Times. I think, you know, with Writers for the Sea, it can be a professional organization to really expand the, the sphere. You know, there's Mystery Writers of America, but I really didn't get thinking about Writers for the Sea till I saw that there's also a Cat Book Authors Association. And if there's a Cat Book Authors Association, there ought to be an association of people writing about the other two thirds of our planet and the other half of our oxygen. Um, yeah, David, it's so true. I was just reading a survey that Pew did, I believe it was Pew, of global leaders asking them to rank critical uh, issues and climate change says that was at the top of their list and ocean was at the bottom. And it's like, oh God, all right. Um, so what long way to go on that. weather. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. But if they read Oceans for Dummies, they'll understand <laughs> the yep. difference between climate and weather and why the ocean, why climate change is actually an ocean problem. Uh, but Wendy has a question, actually, for, for you. Oh, no, Natasha's in charge. Oh, that's true. Natasha, we've got more questions. We do. Yeah, um, and I think this is well. something we haven't really touched on, which is books and just information in general about what we're doing on a management level to protect this resource that we all 
we care that we care about, you know, what do you guys have any recommendations on books or information on how we're actually protecting the ocean? Well, in terms of policy, there's an old book called Blue Frontier. It's kind of out of date, maybe, but it's got that comprehensive. uh, well, and also one of the one of the main things that we're pushing, actually, that the whole reason we did Ocean Champs and, and we talk about so much in Oceans for Dummies is, you know, is 30 by 30 and the call to action that so many amazing people, including Pristine Seas, are doing by just trying to protect 30 percent. We must protect at least 30 percent of our ocean by 2030. Um, and, and we talk about you know, why that's important and we break it down and we just want to get more people to get excited and get behind that movement that you know, not for nothing, it's really nice to see so many NGOs get behind a movement because they usually have their own, everybody has their own, but so many people have signed on to this and so many people were fighting for, for the three MPAs down in Antarctica. And sadly it didn't, it didn't come up during Camlar, but we are, we are faithful that it is going to soon happen. And if this indeed does happen, it'll be the largest act of protection of our ocean in the history of humanity. An amazing, what an amazing legacy we can we can save for future generations. And we're at a great moment for policy potential. I mean, we have a ocean climate action plan that all the authors today are signatories on, uh, along with our new climate czar, John Kerry has signed on. I mean, it's a template and a way to build a constituency because things are more possible. I mean, you know, I was so happy to finally write my last article on Trump and the environment. It was titled Trump to Ocean Drop Dead. <laughs> Tomorrow I have a piece in the Hill on the ocean and, and the Biden-Harris administration. There's huge potential for change. And a lot of that is education. A lot of that is getting people to read these books, you know, to get, to get the engagement so they can become informed and active citizens. We certainly have, you know, the people listening today are kind of preaching to the choir, which is good. Agitprop is good, but we got to take it to the next step. There are other questions. Why we had one question about whether Ocean for Dummies would be translated into other languages. Yes. So um, as far as I have heard, it's obviously it's coming out in English and also Spanish, French and Japanese as mm-hmm. of now. That's what, we're, that's what we've been told. So we're excited about that. Now. Yeah, but hopefully more. I think those are the four they're going to start with. Great. The other, uh, we had another question here, uh, and also just a comment that uh, we've got some small local bookstores that are happy to promote some of these books. So we'll make sure that that all of our books are uh, from Sausalito Books by the Bay was one in particular. By the Bay. We let's let's make sure we get in touch with them. Um, we also uh, one of our attendees asked what it may be. Uh, Hannah or Aunt Enrique can talk about what your daily writing routine is? How, how does it work? What is your process as a writer? Very interesting question. Um, mine's probably gonna be different for most people because I am in school still, I'm a high school student, but I did write a lot of it during the pandemic. But also when before the pandemic, I was taking time like in between flights, like I would write out like chapters and or re-edit things whenever I could have the chance because when I was still in school and doing stuff, it was hard to find the time. And they do have some strict deadlines sometimes of when they get a um, certain amount of pages or words done by. But I'd say like for my my daily routine, it was usually I'd crank out. I kind of just, I don't, I throw, I say throw up for a lack of better terms, but like the ideas I really want to make sure I cover um, like on another piece of scratch paper of like, this is what I, my goals are um, and the ideas that I had and I've been thinking about and then kind of forming those into sentences because as a public speaker obviously 
you know, you can play around with tone and um, you can say things that are, you know, funny or you can make things come off um, differently than how words can. It can be harder. And I definitely struggled with that is trying to still make it captivating, especially for a younger audience, um, you know, just in words without having me talking to people and actually like connecting them with my voice. So um, I would take quite a bit of time just trying to formulate it exactly how I wanted it to. And that would take a lot of writing and rewriting and uh, going back through and finding different definitions and synonyms for words that I was looking for to perfectly fit what I was looking for. But I'd usually, I do that for a while. Honestly, I'd try and figure out how do I want to portray this and make it something that I am truly proud of. But obviously that took a long time. That was not all in a day's work. So I would usually just, yeah, jot out my ideas and kind of formulate those into sentences that I liked. And then a lot of times I do some research and find um, like new upcoming data. I'd try and include statistics, but also break it down. That's easier to digest for other young audiences, especially when you talk about like big numbers. A lot of kids don't even understand what like 8 billion tons of plastic in the ocean mean to them. Um, so breaking it down into digestible information for them too, um, because things that I can understand um, because I've been doing this for eight years is not what other people that are just starting out are going to understand. I had a simple routine. I woke up two hours before my wife. So I had two hours of quiet in the morning. I went to the kitchen. I grabbed my two copies of Julia Child's The French of Art Cooking, put it on the countertop, put my laptop on top of it, and I stand. I stood. And that was my standing desk um, for six months, uh, every morning for two hours. But nobody writes as fast as Ashlan. Man, you are a machine. Oh, that's insane. Well, <laughs> well, I moved something because, if, Philippe, if you move a little bit, I will tell you. So for that is the corner, all the clothes. I sat in that corner for, what, three months? Yeah. And I wrote 450 pages. And well, I wrote three chapters. Okay, sorry. Philippe wrote three chapters, and Short I wrote ones. the remaining 21. You chapters. know, and, and, and here's the thing. We had a wonderful co-author. Joe helped we us organize. Great. I think the key for something like this is organization and, like, yep. pre-planning. So, you know, there was the writing part, but there was a good six weeks ahead of that, prior to that, which was, like, planning. So the first thing was, like, how do you write a book about all things ocean. So it was just like thinking through very specifically in the table of contents and yeah. organizing the book of being like, okay, here's the big broad buckets we know we need to cover. We need to cover the physics of the ocean. We need to cover the biology of the ocean and the chemistry of the ocean. Okay. So how do we then break that up? And so there was a good six weeks of like organizing yeah. and thinking through the structure of each of these and then breaking them down into more and more specific table of contents. Yeah. And then you had a there was a, a roadmap for you to be like, right, and 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 page count. Like we knew how many pages we wanted to maximum pages we could hit. We kind of went over that a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, and so we then broke that into what we'd estimate per chapter. I mean, there's a lot of organization that went into this to allow them to hit the ground like and just start cranking out these chapters. And we had wonderful research and wonderful support from folks we have, you know, we know from Woods Hole and Scripps and Noah. Um, Noah and, you know, research, you know, and scientists we know all over the world. They were helping us, Kaust in Saudi Arabia, et cetera. So we had a lot of people giving us great information and willing to help support us. University of North Carolina, we had, you know. Um, um, Our technical reviewers are from my alma mater, which I'm very thankful for because the worst thing I could do would be to write something incorrect as a Cousteau about the ocean. Yeah, that would be so bad. I would make sure our technical correct, our technical editors uh, went through it with a fine tooth comb. But well, you sound you sound surprisingly collaborative, which is of course another difficulty in writing to 
Right. You know, it was, we, we divided up and then Ashton would send me a chapter she wrote. I'd send her one I wrote and it was, I mean, we worked so well together anyway. And three weeks on a minor little shrimp boat in the Marshall Islands filming in radioactive, you know, islands for a show discovery showed us we worked together well, but, and then for, for the and endangered. And left me alone in my little dark yeah. corner. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I can tell when she's like in a, in a, in a, in a space, but I mean, for the endangered and for fiction, it's similar, but different in that, you know, when you're putting a fiction book together, which I've done a few now, and we're right in the middle of book two for the endangered, it's, you know, thinking more of like, what are the characters? What are their backgrounds? We wrote bios on all the characters that don't end up in the books just for us to stay consistent with them. We wrote rules about the world. So yes, we want all the science to be accurate, but an orangutan can fly an airplane. So where we changed the rules about nature, we knew specifically what we were doing. And, and so writing those rules. So again, preparation and then thinking through what's the story arc and what are the conflict in the characters and what are the key conservation themes we want to bring across? And then how do we tell stories around each of those and work on that for a few months in that story arc? But then writing the fiction, writing the endangered of my co-author, Austin, is more like a like a nine month process probably because yeah. it's just and, there's a lot to that the fiction and people. and some of it's metabolic too. I mean, it sounds like Enrique, you're a morning writer. I mean, when I've been doing my books, you go out in the field, you transcribe, you get your notes. But when I'm ready to actually write what I consider final copy, it's almost always works best between like eight p.m. and two a.m. You know, you got to be like the quiet time. I guess your quiet time is is coffee in the kitchen in the morning. I, I think this has all been tremendous. It's it's a great launch for what I hope will be a, a, a number of Writers for the Seas um, activities online and hopefully someday soon off as well. So thank you all. I mean, uh, Ashlyn, Philippe, Hannah, Enrique. Um, thank you all. Yeah, thank you. Enrique, always a pleasure to see you. Hey, good to see you guys. Love you. Give a kiss to your lovely bride for us. Thanks, everybody. <laughs> Care. Rising Tide is a production of Blue Frontier with hosts David Helberg and support from Natasha Benjamin, Ellie Curlow, and myself, Vicki Nichols Goldstein. Rising Tide's editing services and additional technical support are provided by studio Kate May of San Diego, California. The theme song is written and performed by Ethan Kenbarg. You can find Rising Tide, the ocean podcast at www.bluefront.org or download it anytime from Apple, Google, or Spotify. Off in the salty ocean, off where the waves roll free, the sparkling water rises, then crashes to the sea. Out amongst the breakers, you'll have no need to fear. It's true, it's the blue frontier. Off to the blue frontier. Sparky, come here, buddy. Sparky, there you are. Good boy, Sparky.